In traps for the final of the Easter Cup, one on the right, Stylish Shane, two move gas, three Dornava Pride, four Clonsherry, five Rich Tea, and six, which is now favourite, Clover Kid. As the hare comes up to the traps. Now and away they go. Clover Kid very well away, and so is Move Gas. Move Gas and Clover Kid and Stylish Shane, the three good ones, and they're hitting the bend together. And it's Move Gas slipped in. It took a good lead there. Clover Kid has slipped back. It's Move Gas now challenged by Stylish Shane, and in third place is Clover Kid. A great race between the three of them. But showing the way is Jeremy Kennett Train, Move Gas. Stylish Shane from Cork is second. Clover Kid, the favourite, is third. And that's it going round the last bend with Move Gas still holding on. There's a good challenge coming up as they go to the line. Move Gas holding on from a fast finishing Clover Kid. Clover Kid going very fast to the line, but it's Move Gas. Clover Kid and Dornava Pride a fast finisher in third place. And that, for Mr Richard Liffey of Offaly, was the achievement of any Greyhound owner's ambition, the winning of a cup. Only the few achieve it. But, like golf, the Greyhound game has its minor prizes, its minor races, its thrills, and, of course, its frustrations and heartbreaks. It's a game open to everybody, to the poor man as well as to the rich. Many's the boy who went through university because of the good fortune won by the hound in the backyard. Many is the parish priest who would never have been educated but for the additional income brought in by the extra bit of livestock, the greyhound. Tonight, we look at some of the facets of this sport, or industry if you wish, which brings over a million pounds a year into the country. Do you want to try your luck? If you want to, you can buy the ready-to-race dog. If you want to have the additional satisfaction of rearing your greyhound, you can breed him or buy him as a pup. He could cost you anything from £15 to £75, depending on his breeding. And for the next 12 months, you'll have the pleasure of seeing him shoot up from the kitten-sized pup to the powerful and graceful animal which can weigh anything up to £80. But a word of warning. There's no point in rearing a greyhound unless you do it properly. The ideal way is to rear him in the country on the farm at full liberty, free to roam about and give himself his own exercise. But you can rear him in a city garden if you do it the right way. Danny Horgan of Dublin owns and works in a busy ladies' hairdressing establishment, yet he has in his back garden successfully reared greyhounds which have won many races. Danny takes up the story of the pup at eight weeks. Well... At that stage, it's a case of selecting food which will build bone and muscle. That, I think, is comes first. Uh, that means um, during our lunch break, what have you, uh, looking after the dog, giving them as much open freedom as we can, uh, which is still in a confined space. But um, the most important part at about this stage is, to my mind, inoculation and that is five-in-one injections. And I wish that everybody connected with dogs, not alone greyhounds, would make sure of giving, having their dogs inoculated. Uh, it saves an awful lot of expense at a later date. Um, having got over that point, uh, it's just a matter of um, leaving them have their freedom or whatever freedom they can get until they are about, say, four months. But at that time, they would need, to my mind, to be allowed the freedom of an open field, even if it was only for one hour twice a week. That is quite enough, I believe, at that stage. So that for the, the backyard breeder, if we may call it that, the backyard rearer, you just let them have the run of the back garden 
trot yes, around yeah. like a household pet. You obviously yeah. can't let them out on the street or let them run completely oh, no, loose no, around no, the no, su- suburban no, area, no, can you? No, but of course, you've got to look at it that the risk of injury is nil in the confined space, whereas if they are opened, if they are reared in open space, there is the danger of knocked up toes, broken legs, what have you, getting in contact with barbed wire. At what stage do you let them out then for full field gallops? Uh, my, from having watched how they have galloped, I have found that a pup at five months does not stretch out fully if he is used to a confined space uh, for about, he would have to go into a large area uh, maybe the fourth or fifth time before he's actually striding out perfectly, what we will call having a greyhound stride. Um, I have found that even if you leave them out at four months or at eight months, the stride is still short until about the fourth or fifth time that they've been used to the open space. What kind of food do you recommend for uh, growing dogs? Well, there again, it is what is economical and what is not. Uh, They need protein foods such as meat. That is a necessity if you want to get 100% success with building bone muscle that will stand up to rigours of racing. And after all, racing is tough. Um, If you want to rear dogs in the cheap and that you just give them anything from just plain bread and milk, uh, you are not giving protein food. With the result, you have the danger then of pull muscles broken legs, badly formed bones, cow hocks, um, bad on the feet, instead of the toes being up like, shall we say, the usual racing expression, cat's feet, you haven't got it, you've got flat feet. With the result, when it comes to the difference between maybe doing 30-50 or maybe 29-90, well, there it is, it's been lost in the rearing, to my mind. At what stage would you consider them fully reared and ready to go into serious training? Well, there again, fully grown, 10 to 12 months. Fully developed 15 months, possibly earlier, depending again on the size of the dog. But it's from my own hard experience, I know that bones are liable to injury at possibly under 18 months. Uh, You will get the type of stuff like the green stick fracture. You get that in children. You will not get it in older people. You will get it in a dog, I know from experience, at say 14 months. So there is the thing that whereas 14 months is the usual to start off doing trials, there is still the danger of bone injuries at that early stage. Possibly it's 18 months really but then is it economical? We've still got to look at the economics of it. Is it economical to keep a dog idle until he's 18 months? That's city rearing for those of us who have to rear our dogs that way. Another aspect of rearing the country Rearing is described by John Fielding of Thurless. Well, uh, I think he should be treated as a dog. I mean, this business of treating him just because he's paid 25, 30 or 40 pounds for him shouldn't affect uh, the, the business at all. He should still be treated as a dog and he should be reared out in the open. He should be given a dog's life, a variety in his feeding and plenty of scope to run around. uh, I would say that if he had another greyhound with him, all the better, to give him a little bit of incentive to exercise himself. In other words, don't lock him up in a glass house and treat him as something that is going to win the derby. Exactly, exactly. He should be treated as a greyhound, and this business of petting him shouldn't enter into it at all regardless of the price 
I mean, the more people, uh, the more money is paid for a greyhound, the more people are inclined to be uh, careful about him, but that shouldn't be at all. Right. You've let him loose. He's going to ramble around the place. He has the run of three or four fields, five or six fields. Will not his natural instincts tend uh, to make him supplement his diet by an odd hen or uh, somebody's uh, duck or something like that? Yeah, well, I don't think they do him any harm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, the hen or the duck won't do him any harm. Uh, it's, uh, the inclination of a dog is to chase anything that runs in front of him. Well, if he is fed properly, do you think he'll still do that? Oh, definitely. I mean, he, he must chase. Uh, his inclination is to chase anything that runs in front of him. Well, no, then we we're up against a real human difficulty in the country then. That's all very well for the man who's rearing his greyhound, but what about the farmer next door or the lady next door who's rearing the litter of ducks or the, the clutch of ducks? Well, I is, mean, is there, must... is, there, is, there, is there often friction about this? I wouldn't think so. I mean, the people who keep keep greyhounds uh, always realise that there's somebody next door who has sheep or they have lambs or they have even even calves or suck bunnives. And if dogs are let loose, they're apt to chase those. But uh, it's up to the person that owns the dogs to see that, that, that they're not let loose when these, these lambs are... Uh, let free or when these lambs or these pigs are let free or when these chickens are out and loose. So your greyhound is reared. Then you have his markings taken by an ICC steward. He gets his identity card and his name. His name, incidentally, must not be uh, longer than 14 letters anymore, which is good for uh, commentators trying to call them quickly as they go to the first bend. Then, in a matter of weeks, he does his preliminary trials. If you're lucky, he's chasing the hare, as they say. That means he's following the artificial hare. He's fast enough to be graded in a race. After that, well, you may have just another grader worth not very much. Maybe you have another Spanish battleship who won those three never-to-be-forgotten derbies in the 1950s. Maybe you have another derby winner like this year's Greyhound of the Year, Russian Gun, the dog who inspired this nice ballad by Con Murphy. In the shade of a cool August evening The blue ribbon of racing was run in the cross, as it's known to the locals, in that track famed for pleasure and fun. Now the entries we scanned with excitement as the first heats were ready to run. And we pondered on the shrewdness of Shamo who made favorite the black Russian gun. But as soon as the first heats had ended, there were fancies from north and from south, with a few from cross channel included, our stalwarts from home for to rout. Then the fancied ones fell by the wayside. Yanka by first, then whitely spow down. But we'll wish them good luck in the future, for no doubt they'll meet fame and renown. 
So tonight they're in traps for the final. The excitement and tension is on. As we watch our original fancy, drawn in trap trees, black Russian gun. <clears throat> in trap two is the veteran from Carlo, renowned for his stamina and dash. While inside him, our young exportation, the well-fancied fawn, Ricard Flash. But the draw has not favor, proud Lincoln. He is drawn there in dreaded trap four. If Ned Campion's bailed hay gets a flyer, then the cheers down in Comer will soar. Now the lineup is almost completed, and the punters have wagered their cash, and the major support seems to favor the brilliant young Nordren dry flash. Now a silence creeps over the stadium as the hare she commences her run. Like a rocket from out of the center comes our champion, the black Russian gun. From the first bend, the race was now ended. Twas sewn up by Pigal's greatest son, and as hard as dry flash tried to match him, twas a cakewalk for black Russian gun. So now that we're back in the local, with the derby all over and won. A salute to the owner and trainer of that line-hearted black Russian gun. But the sporting aspect of the game is always paralleled by the commercial aspect. The sale of greyhounds brings over a million pounds into the country every year. Some greyhounds are sold privately, but the main greyhound mart is the sales bench on tracks such as Cork, Limerick, Clonmel, Thurles, Harold's Cross, but mainly Shelburne Park. Louis McGorn is the general manager of Shelburne Park. Well, the procedure is that a person that who wants to enter a dog for the sales, they complete a sales entry form. They are then allocated a date. We have approximately 42 to 44 sales in the year, uh, from mid-February to mid-December. Uh, we hold them fortnightly, and depending on the entries, you are allocated a date uh, as, as, as entries uh, become vacant. About how many dogs are sold in each session? Well, we catalogue in each, for each day 150 dogs, and uh, we would sell approximately in the region of 70 to 90, depending on the particular sale per day. What's the... Average price, if you could. <laughs> hit uh, the average price, it's 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 not easy to determine. But I suppose one would say in the region of 
100 to 130 guineas would be the average price. It again depends on the particular sale. Uh, prior to, say, coming of the English Derby, prices are tend to go high. When buyers are anxious to get uh, a Derby prospect, and so they uh, possibly would pay a higher price than when after June, when the major event on the English track, which is recognised the English Derby, has taken place. Now, you say about 70 are sold in each of the catalogues. That means that there are about 120 or 130 that are not. Why are those not sold? Well, a, a certain amount of those particular dogs are entered at a very early stage. Uh, they may be entered three to four or five months prior to the actual sale. They may have become injured. They may have been sold beforehand, so they don't actually attend the sales. Normally, what would attend the sales would be approximately 120, 110 to 120 dogs, and of those, I say something like 70 to 90 are sold. Do you find that owners tend to overprice their dogs? This, this, this is this is true. Owners are tend to overprice their dogs. Uh, there was a very big boom in the sale of greyhounds uh, some years past, and owners still are thinking of these high prices and uh, with the restrictions in England and their uh, tracks closing down uh, they're still not accepting the fact that English buyers are not prepared to pay these high prices for greyhounds and as such then they're they're valuing their dogs too high which is one of the difficulties in uh, actually getting an agreement at a sale with between the owner and the buyer. Now, when you say English buyers, how do the English buyers go about uh, selecting their dog and then buying him? Well, a lot of the English owners or buyers, should we say, they get the catalogues uh, prior to the sale. Uh, they're interested in a particular dog. They then decide either to come over themselves and look at the dog taking part in a trial, which we have prior to the actual sales, or they may ask an agent to act on their behalf. And as such... Uh, buy for them if they are if the price is what they contend paying well many of the agents here of course have quite a lot of customers who keep coming back to them and uh, what i'm going to say now has nothing at all to do with these because obviously if these agents weren't doing a satisfactory job the buyers wouldn't be coming back to them but there is there have been complaints from owners uh, especially from down the country they bring their dogs up and there are a certain amount of hangers on who uh, start feeding sort of all, well, I'd almost say wrong information to these buyers coming over. They say, such a dog isn't chasing it, he's not worth anything, don't mind him, he has a bad leg, some of this kind of thing. Um, can anything be done to improve or to crush out that bad practice? Well, you see, that in a day, on a, the day of sales, there is sales trials take place on the morning before the actual uh, auctions start. Therefore, these particular dogs, if they're supposed to be fighters, if they have track legs, the buyers can see them running there themselves and they can judge. And I don't think that very, very few buyers would take notice of such accusations as that a particular dog has a track leg. If he has a track leg, he will be seen in his trial. He can be examined when he's put up on the bench. And as such, he will. they will know. They're not in this business uh, just to pick... Uh, um, a dud, should one say. Hmm. Now, a lot of the sales take place publicly, public auction, so you bid such and such a figure and he's knocked down to you on the bench at that. There is also the question of private sales, which uh, up to some years ago weren't officially registered at all. Nowadays, uh, private sales and the prices paid for them are also published. Um, what would you, would you have any comments on that? Well, we publish now all the sales which 
take place through Shelburne Park Sales Company. And uh, a private sales uh, result from the dog not being sold on the bench and being sold afterwards. Uh, perhaps a lot of sales are private in the sense that they have gone on the bench. The owner originally uh, was looking for some figure of which he considered his dog possibly worth. Uh, none of the buyers considered the dog was worth this. So the obvious place was when he put him up on the bench, he found the market. He found a figure whereby the now he said that a particular dog was the owner wanted to sell him for £600. Uh, he went up on the bench. He possibly got a bid up to £400 or rather 400 guineas, uh, no higher bid. So now he, the private sale can take place afterwards. The, the buyer and the seller can come together and they can now make, possibly uh, agree on a difference of between the four and £600. And so this is why uh, private place sales take place uh, having found the market at the actual, when the dog has gone up on the bench. What sort of uh, figure... What sort of turnover is there in money terms in about a year's sales? In about a year's sales, there'd be over uh, £300,000. And these go mostly to England? Uh, mostly they are go to the United Kingdom market. We have this year uh, had sales to the American market, well, in the sense that we have had British buyers, a uh, man like uh, Phil Rees and Nicky Kervick, uh, who purchased... Uh, 35 greyhounds at the Shelburne Park sales and are now racing them in the Boston area in the United States. We're hoping that this market, uh, the American market, which the board actually uh, have been uh, in use for some years, will divert some of its uh, activities towards Shelburne Park sales company. Can anything be done to increase the demand for the more moderate-priced dogs, which have to be sold almost at a loss, but possibly just barely at a get-out price. I'm thinking now in terms of the Spanish market and the Scandinavian markets. Yes, um, the Spanish market do take a, a certain number of the cheaper-priced dogs. Uh, the British market really has been the backbone of the Shelburne Park sales, and they still take, along with the dearer lots, they take a lot the cheaper lots to fill in for uh, smaller tracks where they require the number of runners. But again, uh, this is becoming more difficult year by year because of the position in Great Britain at the present time. And uh, we would hope that uh, we could, if possible, sell as, as many as we cheaper dogs to places uh, such as you mentioned as Spain, uh, Sweden or any other countries that would be interested in them. With the closing down of some of the English tracks, the importance of developing the huge potential of the American market is now more paramount than ever. Pat Dalton of Golden, County Tipperary, has raced and sold teams of dogs there in America since 1961. I asked him what he does over there to encourage the more general sale of Irish dogs. Well, actually, uh, some people find it hard to believe this, but... The only greyhounds I sell in the United States are the dogs that I take out with me, or lease there, whichever the case may be. Any American owner who should approach me looking for greyhounds, I always advise them to come to Ireland themselves, pick them out, and uh, uh, that way they will. They, at least they've seen them run, and uh, one or two or three of them come uh, within a month or two after I coming back every year. And they come to the agency. The board and gone set up an agency, and uh, they, the Americans feel that they are protected if they buy through the board and gone.
the Irish Greyhound Board because it's a semi-state body and they feel that they've got that amount of protection. And the man in Kerry or in Belfast has just as much of a chance of selling his dog to the Americans as I have. Now, you have imported some American sires to Ireland and you are experimenting with a crossbreed of Irish and American greyhounds. Uh, how, what success have you had in that so far? Well, I'd say 50-50. The first of the American females that are brought to this country did not produce for Ireland. But when I sent their progeny to the United States, they ran far better than I expected. I brought back one sire dog and... Um, I'd say he, he's just about paying his way, that's about all. Which one is that? Rocket Chip. His uh, uh, advertising is very expensive, and uh, I'm well satisfied because I did not expect the Irish breeders to breed to him at the start, but right now he's doing very well. What kind of dog is needed in America? You've got to be able to stay, that's number one. The footing is altogether different, and uh, somebody might say to me at the racetrack tonight, his dog did 29.60 in a race on any track in Ireland. That means absolutely nothing where America's concerned. If, you, if, if I don't see a greyhound run, I hate to even recommend him unless I've seen him run. He, he might not be able to do 30.50 and could be more suitable in the States than the 29.50 dog. And this has been proven over and over again. When you say he must stay, what, uh, over what distance? Well, their sprint is 5.50. They run a 3.30 for nothing but just to suit me when I go there. And their, their feature race is run over 660 yards, which I would put down 700 yards on turf. They run on sand. And the sand, the type of sand uh, they use, it's perfect uh, footing, but if you run the rails, you're dead, as they say in the States. Well, with our standard distance 525, our medium long distance is 600, and our marathon 750, uh, you can't have very much experience. You can't have very much chance of assessing whether a greyhound is an extreme distance dog, can you? Well, uh, actually, when I'm at a racetrack, I never look at the dog that flies out in front. If I was looking for an English prospect, I would, an English derby prospect. But I, I like to have a look at the dog that's flying at the finish and maybe, as they say, before they go to the trip or the canvas here in Ireland, the dog that's running on at that stage usually suits the American conditions better. Pat, they do, they do say here that a dog who isn't able to do the 525 in any sort of decent time and who's plodding away at the finish of a 750, that he's not really possibly chasing the hare at all, but that he's galloping on when the other dogs have worn themselves out chasing the hare. Well, uh, this is something that uh, I, 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 I doubt that... Is there anybody in Ireland qualified to answer that question? Because if you breed for pace or speed, you get it. But if you breed for, um, if you breed two 31 seconds sire dog and a 31 seconds female, you're, you're not going to get, unless you're lucky, a 29.50 dog, you'll get something that can keep running and running, plodding away. But the thing is, you breed, if you're in it as an industry, to suit a market. You've got to breed for the market that you're trying to supply. And the Americans want distance dogs. Now, you have supplied both the English and the American markets. Which of the two do you consider uh, has the greatest uh, prospect for Irish salesmen? Well, naturally, England, but at the moment, the English market is declining. Due to the fact, and none other, they say bingo, this, that, and the other thing, that the, the racetracks are worth so much money for development and so on, that uh, they're just selling out. 
the White City has been sold for two or three million pounds. I don't know the figure exactly, but... You'd say, well, you'd say England is over the peak? I would say yes. You will have about... Uh, which I'd say the same thing will happen in Ireland. You'll have about 10 or 15, about 10 or 15 tracks, maybe 10 within the next five years. That's about all well, operating. With racing in America, only localised in a few areas, do you think it's developing there still? In America, the racing at the moment on every racetrack is up 25% approximately within the past year. It's absolutely booming. And on some racetracks, they close the gates a half an hour before the first race due to the fact that they cannot accommodate the crowds they're getting. But now you, in conjunction with Bortnagun, have done a lot to open the American market. Do you think that enough has been done, or do you see it developing fast enough to uh, make a decent contribution to the million a year which comes into Ireland? For well, when I first raced in, the, raced in the States in 1961, I said it, that it would take 10 years to break into the American market, because at that time they were just absolutely fed up with Irish dogs. It took four or five years to convince the Americans that they could come to Ireland and buy suitable greyhounds to race in the United States, and when one or two came over and was successful, there are at least 12 or 15 coming over annually and spending no less than £10,000. I think that next year you will have double that amount. When these Americans come over, how do the general public, uh, the general public owners, shall I say, uh, know that they're there, and what chance have they of selling their dogs to them? Well, uh, Usually the Americans that come over go to the Bordnagan in Limerick and uh, they advise them on the feature events that are running and so on and the Americans go to the racetracks and if they see a dog that suits them they just go to the owner or look for him over the loudspeaking system and um, try and have a deal for the dog. That's as simple as that. What sort of prices are they prepared to pay? Well, I'd say about the cheapest price that any of them have paid is four or five hundred pounds. One or two might buy a, a more reasonable dog, but they usually pay good prices. They have paid as high as fifteen hundred pounds. Are they hard people to deal with? No, the Americans, this is one thing that I will have to say is a help for the Irish owners. The Americans will not mind if a dog has a slight blemish, if he can do it, they will buy. Whereas for our other markets, if a dog has a toe, a track leg or something else, they just say, well, he's worth nothing. But the Americans... Do not mind if the dog can do it, they just take him. If, he, if they see him and they're satisfied, that's that. Indiscriminate breeding, breeding to any old thing, is providing a surplus of greyhounds in the country, greyhounds that will be no use to their owners or indeed to the country or to the industry in general. I spoke to Johnny O'Connor, who was the secretary of the Greyhound Stud Dogs Association, about the important question of breeding. Well, naturally... We usually breed for a female line, which has proven to draw winners to the various hours she has been mated to. And invariably you will find that the, um, the dogs who will claim most popularity are those which win classics, such as the English Derby, or the, uh, the fastest dog in the world like Yellow Printer, or the dam lines that have the, um, potentially have thrown classic dogs to the various hours, as I said previously. Well, Johnny, you know and I know that that doesn't always work out, that the English Derby winner can go to stud and he wouldn't throw anything worth racing. Yeah, that is quite true. Uh, the big difficulty I see is uh, a new dog is put to stud, that'd be A, and uh, people throughout Ireland 
predominantly most of these people, they are breeding dogs indiscriminately, as you say, and uh, they are using SARS according to their means, the means of their pocket. They can only use a SAR that they can afford to pay his fee. No, that is... Sorry? No, I will go back. Uh, go, yeah. We'll go back a little bit on that. Uh, for there, we've we've a lot of people listening to us who don't know what fees are at all. What yeah. would you pay for a good greyhound sire at stud? You will pay in the region of three thousand pounds. No, I mean a stud fee. Oh, a stud fee. Well, anything from uh, well, roughly the rough figure will be around forty forty pounds anyway. But dogs, when they're put to stud. You can't put him at a, an exorbitant fee like forty pounds. You invariably put him in at twenty-five guineas, thirty pounds. There's always luck money. But as I say, the breeder he can only use a sir in keeping with his pocket, and that is the big difficulty. I think myself personally that Borden Gun should subsidise breeders that have not financial uh, well uh, status to outlay say fifty pounds. Sixty pounds or a hundred pounds, like our top sir is at the moment, and knowing quite well that they are going to a sir, uh, chancing that he will breed a winner when they know that line breeding previously has produced champions. They cannot use a sir that has proven champions to a line bred bitch like theirs. Now the Bordenagon should come in and subsidise these people and give it to them. Such as when they sell their pups, let them pay it back, let them put a small levy and interest in it, but they're only going to further the, the uh, prospects of breeding better dogs than this indiscriminate breeding. The man goes to a £20 sir because, well, he can knock the owner of the stud dog down to his uh, uh, limit and his limitations. Johnny, the country is flooded with bad dogs at the moment that will never reach even the sales bench, not a mind the tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you have any recommendations to cure that and from the breeding point of view? Well, I mean, uh, breeding champions from champions, you still pr- produce bad dogs often. Uh, the world over, we, you, you, that is happening. I would say myself that the grading system, that the, uh, the board, as I said previously, they should subsidise people. There should be something whereby that the breeder, a man in a cottage, a man with, who has spent his whole time spending 18 months rearing pups, come to the age and find that they're not worth a guinea when they come to the sales in Shelburne Park or the sales elsewhere. Now, the, that particular man, he needs some assistance from some source or other. But would it not be better to give him advice and tell him that uh, that particular bitch he's breeding off is not worth breeding off at all? Would you, would, you not, would you not agree or would you not think that there should be some basic qualifications uh, demanded before a, a, a stud dog or a stud bitch would be allowed into the book? But who is to tell which is the best brood bitch maybe a bitch which has broken his leg as a puppy, has no qualifications as you say to run, hasn't done 29.50, hasn't broken 30 seconds maybe the 32 second bitch maybe she is the best proven brood bitch who is to tell the fastest bitches and the fastest dogs have produced nothing the government appointed body which controls the greyhound industry is Bordnagun, which has its headquarters in Limerick its chief officer Seamus Flanagan has been with the board since its foundation well, the board was set up following a government inquiry which uh, the, form, the then Minister for Agriculture, Mr Dillon, established in 1948 to inquire into the um, general position of the greyhound industry at that time. There followed then a long period uh, when there were 
a number of bills before the Doyle, before the uh, Ground Industry Act of 1958 was eventually passed and the board was set up in July 1958. What would you say had to be done when the board was founded? Well, basically, I would say that it was a question of restoring the image of the greyhound industry to its rightful place. I think that what had happened was that uh, through the following the um, emergence of greyhound racing as a very uh, strong entertainment sport from, say, 1928 onwards, uh, that the administrative control end of it became something beyond the resources of a voluntary body such as the Irish Coursing Club at that time. And this tendency was reinforced then by the sort of post-war aftermath when you had a lot of money and a lot of money chasing, say, the entertainment industry in particular. And greyhound racing boomed, say, between 1944 and 1948. And uh, naturally, inevitably, uh, certain lot of... Uh, some difficulties arose on the administrative side at the time and some things happened which cast uh, uh, doubts on the image of the industry. And this, I think, essentially is what led to the board's establishment. Are you referring specifically to uh, crookedness in racing? Uh, yes, I think that there was, a, there was an idea at the time. I, I would think that it was more a question of a breakdown of control rather than crookedness, but I think that that also was there because there was all this money at the time. It was a big money industry. What sort of crookedness was going on? Uh, well, the, the advisory committee's report uh, dealt uh, at considerable length with various... Uh, th there were really more allegations, I must say, about... Uh, dogs illegal, being switched. Uh, dogs being uh, switched and illegal uh, trials at licensed tracks. Um, and generally a lack of information to the race-going public at the time, which, you know, was, uh, was thought to be uh, uh, deliberately information that should have been at the disposal of the public. What steps did you do to uh, combat that? Well, we, we, um, we immediately... One of our first jobs was to tighten up on discipline, and we did this... Uh, by making fairly stringent regulations, which were based on the previous regulations, but uh, which were subsequently rigidly enforced. And then we made sure that there was a control steward at every one of the tracks to see that they were enforced. And we also appointed stipendary stewards in given areas to make sure that these regulations were applied. What does the, uh, what does the control steward do? His job essentially, I would say also, is to see that the right dog runs. This is his job. In other words, he checks the ear markings of the, the dogs and he makes sure that the right dog is running. And nowadays the public can be certain that the right dog is going. And it's no harm to explain to the listener who mightn't be too familiar with that that if you have two similarly coloured dogs, one of whom is very fast and one of whom is very slow, well, if you bring along the fast dog under the name of the slow one, well, you can get a rather peculiar result. Quite, yeah. uh, Are you satisfied that the, uh, that the measures you've taken have cleaned up the game? 
Well, we're not complacent about this, but I think that I think that we are satisfied with what we've done. I think that we 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 have created a climate in which the greyhound industry today has a very good and deservedly very good reputation for straight and fair running. But at the same time, this is a gambling. This is a gambling sport, and. You're never going to get 100% perfection, and we don't expect that. But we do think that it is a, a, a firmly and fairly run sport at present. It is indeed very often thrown at the sport that it's crooked, that dogs are doped to stop them or to speed them up, and that the switching of dogs can or used to take place. But a look at the results of races over any given period will show that in many, many cases the form dog will win. And, of course, the track managements are always on the alert for the white man trying to pull off a job, to do a stroke, to put one across. Arthur Morris is the general manager of the Clonmel Greyhound Race Company. Is greyhound racing crooked? Uh, I say no. Um, it couldn't possibly be crooked because if the... Um, theories publicised or expounded by those people who so believe were true, then greyhound racing wouldn't last six months. And at the same time, I am quite prepared to admit that wherever there is money, whether it's in greyhound racing, horse racing, football or any other commercialised sport, there will always be temptations and there will always be individuals who will step in and try to make um, an immoral profit, if you like. But in general, the vast majority of the people engaged in these sports are very careful not only of the image of the sport, but of their own image and their own reputations. Now, as a managing director of a greyhound company, what sort of skullduggery would you be expecting your stewards to be on the lookout for? Um, one would, in greyhound racing in particular, anyhow, um, look to the individual who is trying to get a greyhound graded down, as we would call it. In other words, that he's trying to bring a top-class greyhound down to uh, a very low class, shall we say, in uh, st uh, time-wise in greyhound racing would be something like 31.50 seconds for 5.25 yards. And this, uh, this would we say, somebody who has uh, discovered that is on, on, a, on a non-licensed track or a, on a non-official track that has discovered that he has a greyhound that can maybe do 30 seconds and then comes to an official track to grade his dog into a 31.50 race. Exactly. And um, What steps would you, would you... Would you like to mention the steps that you think he'd take? Uh in the majority of cases I would think that um, they'll give their, their, their novice greyhounds their, 
their official trials, they'll then take them to the trial track and improve them over a period of a month if they're working on novices. If they're working on graded race greyhounds, that is to say greyhounds that have already raced, they have six weeks within which to improve them and they will then endeavour to come back and um, show this improvement on the track. Um, I'm not sure if this uh, is coming over clearly to yes, you. Yes, it is. Th that, that, of course, is quite legal, you know, isn't it? This, uh, this is quite legal. And um, it is also uh, the explanation why you experience so very few cases of what you might describe as real skullduggery. And maybe that's enough for one night on that unsavoury aspect. We're all apt to be peevish when we back a loser and look for the worst possible reason to explain our bad luck. So let's turn to a more constructive topic, the future of the greyhound industry in Ireland. Mr Des Hanrahan, chairman of Bordnagon, talks of the board's future plans, particularly with regard to its huge outlay on the purchase of the tracks at Cork and Shelburne Park. Oh, well, this is vital to the industry. We've got to move with the times. Uh, greyhound racing, as indeed all other sports, is facing tremendous competition. And everyone within the industry must get a fair deal, particularly the public, the race-going public. They've got to have the facilities or else they will not come out. Very soon, I'm sure, within the next couple of years, we will have coloured television. And this is going to be an added um, counter-attraction for greyhound racing and other sports. Uh, you're spending roughly half a million, I think is the figure, on Shelburne Park. Well, between purchase price and development, yes, it would be very near a half million pounds. How do you see yourself, or when, getting that back? Well, we would imagine the way things are going at the moment. Shelburne Park is in a state of disruption, if you like, and the attendances are pleasing us very much in all the circumstances. Last year we had some very good glamour dogs, as you know. We had Russian Gone, It's a Mint, and of course that great dog which came back from England, Yellow Printer. And our attendances were very good. And then we had racing during the close season at selective tracks, the two Dublin tracks and Dundalk. This was on an experimental basis, and whether it will be spread to other tracks or not, I'm not in a position to say, because we've got to uh, assess the results and the consequences before any decision can be made. Do you look? Do you visualise the final result in Shelburne Park of the improvements as being on a par with, uh, say, Wimbledon or White City or any of the, those tracks in the way of meals inside the glass and all that? I would imagine so. As far as the Irish public is concerned, this is going to be something new, the Irish race-going public. And I would think, uh, even I'll do the horse racing, that uh, the Shelburne Park stand, when completed, will be an example for all sports. The backbone of any industry, of course, is the man who is breeding the dogs, rearing them and racing them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what sort of a deal do you see for him in the future? There, it, it, let's face it, there have been a lot of grumbles from the owners' association about prize money and about uh, general, the general deal given to owners. Well, on the prize money aspect, first of all, I think that the unless we get full cooperation from all sections inside the industry the game cannot survive or progress as it is doing. About prize money, I think that the 
standards in Ireland compare more than favourably with those obtaining in England, where the track operators have uh, quite a percentage of the tow returns. Uh, here, we've got to take into account that we have to develop the tracks so that the public will come in. Now, inside the last few years, on the provincial tax alone, we have spent something like £300,000 on development work. Well then, when you take into consideration that we had to buy Shepherd Park for £240,000, there's a stand going up, a first-class stand going up, which will cost very nearly £200,000. Then the car track, the purchase of car track, this was vital was something in the region of £125,000. Well, all of this done within the space of three years, two and a half years. I think the Greyhound public, the owner, the man who was depending on prize money to keep, the, keep his side of the business alive, must be very happy. I do agree, Des, but on the other hand, it takes uh, at least £100, £120 to rear any sort of a pup. Uh, the owner is going to spend maybe two or three pounds a week keeping him racing. Uh, if he doesn't get some sort of return for that at some stage, well, the two he has two uh, choices open to him. He can either get out of the game or he can res uh, resort to the old, good old skullduggery and try to pull off a job and resort to betting. Well, one of the big problems, as I see it, is the fact that uh, some people, I'm not saying there are many now, but they're still inclined to breed indiscriminately and they should remember that it costs the same amount to feed a badly bred pup as it does a very well bred pup uh, then again it goes in cycles the small owner may have his good year and the following year he may be down the drain the big owner the same way he can win so many classics in the year and yet the next year he has to be prepared to uh, lose as the small owner has to do constantly and frequently. Would you be prepared at all to consider the purchase of good stud dogs by the board for lease to the owners of good bitches who possibly can't afford to go to the proper breeding dogs? Well, actually, when I became chairman of Bornagan, this was uppermost in my mind the setting up of a national stud. Um, we did have some discussions with the executive committee of the Irish Corson Club. They, in fact, are responsible for breeding. But this idea was rejected at the time. And unfortunately, it was at a time when Bornagan could have afforded to finance the setting up of a national stud. The facilities, the ground, everything was there at Powerstone Park, which is owned by the Irish Corson Club. But then we very shortly after, had to buy Shelburne Park, and we became very deeply involved mm. in financial difficulties, if yes, you like. Yes. Well, how soon do you think it will be before uh, you are out of those difficulties? I would hope that within the next four or five years that the greyhound industry will be on a footing second to none. Of course, most greyhound men contend that the backbone of the greyhound industry is coursing. It was as an artificial extension of coursing that track greyhound racing originated. In spite of attacks from many sources, and in spite of social and economic difficulties, it survives. Greyhound experts contend that, without the infusion of coursing blood into the tracking strains, the trackers would eventually lose the instinct to chase. 
Matt Bruton of Dunboyne is a member of one of the best-known coursing families in the country and is also chairman of the Leinster Coursing Club, one of the hundreds of clubs affiliated to the Irish Coursing Club. Matt Bruton talks about the work of the ICC and the future of the small clubs. I can think back some 25-odd years and remember one of the first meetings that I ever attended, which was a small meeting then, and I could hear the older people all around me saying that coursing was dying then. Well, that particular club is still going strong. I don't say it's any stronger today than it was then, but they're able to put up with the difficulties. They manage through the wholehearted support of the local people who do it for nothing, for a day's outing, chiefly. And I would think that in answer specifically to your question, that the main problem facing these small clubs is a lack of money. And when you're short of money, no matter what you're involved in, well, you're not going to put on the same show as you could if you had unlimited resources at your back. What's their attitude towards the conservation of hares? Well, that's very simply answered. It's, again, another very grave worry to us at the moment. And as such, it's one of the principal abuses that exists in the industry today. We are very conscious of the fact that a lot of illegitimate practices are carried on. And we ourselves now, that is to say, the people who run coursing meetings throughout the country, we do our best to try and minimise the effects of these abuses. As such, the Garage Coursing Club likewise is in the background at all times, very worried about the position, hoping that they and the owners of these clubs or the people who are responsible for running these meetings will work hand in hand and try and preserve the good name of the sport of coursing. To be more specific about the abuses, uh, uh, it has been alleged that hares are sent up a second time, sent up the field a second time, mm-hmm. that when the hare reaches the escape that he's just packed up, sent off to another meeting and so on, and that the mortality rate is, is very, very high. Well, I wouldn't take that an actual fact on its face value. It is true to say, when I s- said at an earlier moment that there are abuses in the industry, that is perfectly true. But in recent years, the Irish Coursing Club has done its best to stamp out these abuses. Now, you're never going to get a 100% clean sheet, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much goodwill you have from the local authorities. But I do in all honesty think that this year you will see a very greatly marked increase in better-run meetings than we have ever had before for the simple reason that the Irish Coursing Club has sent out a direction to all clubs that if they don't tow the line, their licence will be taken from them. If their licence is taken from them, they will not be allowed to run a coursing meeting as such. And, frankly, I think that is the only answer to it. With regard to your allegation that uh, it has been suggested that once a hare completes its day's work at a specific coursing meeting, he's boxed and taken away... Well, I personally have no doubt that that practice has been carried on in on past occasions, but I don't know of any occurrences in my district in during the past season. I heartily deplore such a practice. I know that for a number of reasons, as I say, it has happened in the past, or I believe it has happened in the past, but as I say, I would be totally against it, and as such would do everything in my power to stamp it out. And it is, of course, strictly against the rules of the ICC, isn't it? Oh, totally against, yes. They wouldn't condone such a practice at all. Would you tell us something about the economics of uh, running a coursing meeting? 
The economics of running a coursing meeting is a very sore point indeed with the executive of most coursing clubs because, quite frankly, there is no money in running a coursing meeting at all. The overheads, as we can all appreciate, are rising every year. The amount of money which may be won at any specific coursing meeting hasn't varied greatly over the years. We have had increased grants, it is true, both from the Irish Coursing Club and from Bordenagon. But these grants, while very much appreciated, are swallowed up in the increasing costs. And to all intents and purposes, if you break even on a coursing meeting, I will consider that you're going well. In fact, we don't expect to make money on a coursing meeting. We, Our main source of income is through the membership fees which are paid to our club and other clubs by the members of it. Now, at this stage, I must point out that in order to own a greyhound or to run a greyhound on a track or run a greyhound anywhere, for that matter, you must be a member of a coursing club which is affiliated to the Irish Coursing Club. Without that membership card, which is exchanged for a payment of £1, you cannot, in actual fact, do anything. It is your pathway both to the track and to the coursing field. And that is our chief source of income. How do you see the future of coursing in Ireland? I think with the proper supervision by the Irish Coursing Club that the future of coursing in this country is assured for a number of years to come. At any rate, I wouldn't like to say any more than that. We are faced with a number of natural difficulties in that the young people today are not really as interested as we were when we were their age because they have so many alternative sources of amusement which can be gained with a lot less effort. Likewise, they have far more pocket money than we had when we were their age and they are, shall we say, flying their kite a little higher than we were prepared to do or we were able to do. And somehow or other, the man who has a pound in his pocket today, he's prepared to go to the cinema in the evening or some alternative source of amusement sooner than go out into the coursing meeting and get possibly drowned for very little financial benefit. But um, I, I think coursing is quite safe, provided, as I say, that the abuses which we all know exist or have existed are stopped.